Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, what's the latest and greatest in Canadian politics? Dr. Laurie Turnbull, the Director of the School of Public Administration with Dalhousie University, will join us to talk about that. As the election for a new Conservative leader looms, there are still divisions within the party right now. The Centre Ice Conservatives Conference took place the other day. What about unity for the Conservative Party and how difficult is that going to be? And our weekly Washington report with Reggie Cicchini. We covered the Trump FBI search, the House passing the health care and climate bill, and a lot more. All coming up in the Bill Kelly podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. I want to talk about what the, our Prime Minister is doing. Of course, they're going to be back from holidays in the next couple of days. And the, the word is now that uh, from the Prime Minister's office that uh, the Prime Minister will accompany uh, the Chancellor of Germany. Uh, Olaf Scholz says he comes to Canada for a brief visit later on this month. Roger Ward has details. The trip will include stops in Montreal, Toronto and Stephenville in western Newfoundland. In a statement, the PMO confirmed the August 21st to 23rd visit will start in Montreal, where meetings will be held with German and Canadian business leaders. The statement says the two men intend to talk about clean energy, critical minerals, the automotive sector, energy security, climate change, trade, and Russia's, quote, illegal and unjustifiable invasion of Ukraine. Roger Ward, the Canadian Press. So let's uh, talk about that and uh, some other stuff happening up in the nation's capital, of course. And uh, pleased, as always, to welcome Dr. Laurie Turnbull. Uh, Dr. Turnbull, of course, is the director of the School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Uh, Laurie, thanks for joining us. Uh, and uh, busy, busy weekend in Ottawa uh, with the, the word about the, the German chancellor coming here. We kind of knew about this a couple of weeks ago. And it really centers a lot around uh, Germany's energy needs, I think, doesn't it? Yeah, so this has been uh, an interesting issue that's been percolating for a while. And I think there's a few things feeding into this. One thing is we haven't seen the prime minister very much lately, right? Like he's been on vacation, which I have no issue with. Don't Please don't take it to mean I'm taking issue with that. I'm not. But um, after the after parliament wrapped up and stuff like that, like people have really been, again, like feeling the effects of inflation, hurting, hurting at the gas pump, hurting at the grocery store, everything else. And we haven't seen a whole lot from the prime minister. And so it's going to be interesting to see him and what the reaction will be once he's sort of back out on the public stage and making headlines and, and talking to people and, and talking to the media, right? Like at, he'll be confronted with, with microphones at these things. So he'll be answering some questions. But yeah, on the piece about Ger- Germany's energy needs, this issue flared up uh, in, you know, very recent past around Canada being willing to, you know, ship stuff back in order to be from the Russian company to be able to help Germany get access to the energy that it needed. And that raising the question of, you know, is Canada as solid as it says it is with respect to what's going on in Ukraine? Is there a possibility that, you know, this could be a chip in that armor? And how are we going to have to have broader conversations around people, around countries' reliance on Russian energy if this is the way things are going? Right. Like it's not enough to say, look, we can't we're not going to we're not going to do this in Germany. You're sorry. You're out of luck. There has to be a much more fulsome discussion around all the things you outline, trade, energy, all that stuff to figure out, like how actual global partnerships might shift now as a result of what's happening in Ukraine. And, and they took you're right. I mean, the, the government took a PR hit here when they decided to send those things back. Uh, and, and Germany, of course, came to their defense because they're relying on Russian energy. But the, t- mm-hmm. the discussion about hydrogen came up uh, even then. And I guess this is really to kind of sign the deal officially, really. Uh, but I got the sense from some of the reading I've done over the weekend, though, Laurie, that we're not really ready to, to ship that stuff over there. We've got some work to do at this end, don't we? Well, that's it. And so, I mean, I think 
what we'll probably see, this will be one of those typical, um, you know, which I don't really mean in a bad way, but it's this will be one of those things where there is a new leader in Germany. This is a big shift from, you know, we're, we are all used to Angela Merkel being at the head there. And she was such a huge presence internationally. She was such a leader. And she and Trudeau had become the senior people at G7, right? And so now we've got a shift in leadership in Germany. We've got a shift in what's going on globally. And so, yeah, like there's a sense of where is Canada going to fit into all that? How are we going to manage these relationships? But as you say, this will be a gradual process, right? This will be, we're going to see the two men walk around together with their entourage and we're going to see signs to the public that that there's going to be a you know possibly new sorts of partnerships come of this but that will all take time as always you mentioned uh, that uh, when the prime minister finally gets back in front of the microphones uh, the media has some questions for him i would imagine one of the first ones is going to be about the report this past week uh, that cabinet was told of a possible breakthrough with protesters the night before the emergencies act was invoked uh, in, in other words that wasn't really necessary and uh, the the insinuation here is that uh, the prime minister and the cabinet knew that and they went ahead with it anyway that it's a story that's percolating right now and i imagine it's going to get some wings again when they start bringing it up again to the prime minister oh yeah and so this is an issue that i mean obviously the parliamentary committee is looking into it and there has to be a report when the Emergencies Act is used, there has to be a kind of inquiry and then a report out to justify the use of it. And that's part of the legislation. They have to do it. There's also court cases. Um, there's also litigation against the government from, I think, BC Civil Liber Liberties or possibly another organization, too, around whether this was a constitutional use of the act, whether this was legal, whether this was you know the right thing to do and whether they had hit the threshold to justify it. And so... All of this is going to feed into the narrative as well of the, you know, whether or not the trucker convoy was legal, whether or not this is an appropriate way to, to, you know, protest, if you want to use that word. And so this is going to fit into partisan agendas, too. And the fact that Pierre Polyev is such a front runner in the conservative race and he's somebody who was outspoken in supporting the convoy and he was up there with him and everything else. This is all going to fit into this narrative of trying to hold the government to account. It is a tough one, I think, when the government is making decisions about things that are national security questions and there are things that they aren't going to share with the public because to do so would make the situation worse. But at the same time, in this legislation, there is a need for tr at least some degree of transparency around using the act and the you know the the implications of that and so the ndp will go after the government on transparency the conservatives will go after the government on them just you know using way too heavy an approach on a con on the trucker convoy because the trucker convoy was largely about how people hate justin trudeau so that's this is going to be interesting when parliament comes back yeah and and i think what we need to also do is get some details about exactly what they mean by a deal was was close imminent because uh, it was yeah. the city that was negotiating with the the protesters. It was not the federal government at that stage. And uh, we know that they didn't have great success. It was limited success at best, I guess. Only a couple of trucks left. So we don't know that that, that a, a solution was at hand here. But that certainly seems to be the insinuation. Uh, so I, I guess Minister Mandacino and certainly the Prime Minister is going to have to uh, explain exactly what the timeline was for this. Yeah. And I think um, one of the things, too, is going to be getting some control of the narrative and how the government wants to do that. And so there will be whatever proceedings are going to play out in committee, you know, in the kind of formal investigation process, 
there's going to be that, you know, whatever narrative comes out of that. But then there's also going to be a broader, more public focused narrative, I think, you know, coming from the government around why this was necessary. And they're going to want to win this in the court of public opinion. They're going to want to try to to show how this was a completely necessary and legitimate course of action without actually, you know, blowing up cabinet confidence or anything else. But it's a fine line. Because if the government goes too far in almost demonizing the activities of the tr- of the convoy to be able to say, no, this was justified, we had to do it, that is politically dangerous too. Because you, the, the liberals don't want to look like they are completely intolerant of any criticism of themselves. So this is a really, I think, a, a really tricky line for them to walk. And let's face it, this is a government that has had some pretty serious comms blowups. And so this is something that could be made worse by that if they don't handle it carefully. Well, from a PR standpoint, uh, th- this has got to be you know rather frustrating for these guys because I'm, I'm getting the sense that they really wanted to put this behind them. Uh, yeah. and, and as you say, let the court cases and the lawsuits uh, about the protests themselves, let those carry on. But this kind of swings the focus back into the government's actions right now, which is the last thing I guess they wanted to see now. Well, that's it. And I think you're right. Like those those sorts of like cases will, will happen and the government deals with those things and things that are going on on Parliament Hill are grippingly interesting for someone like me and don't necessarily take up as much time and space in everybody else's life. And so the government can be a bit nimble in how it responds to public pressure about this. But I think the issue will continue to come up because it's not just about the Emergencies Act, right? Like that is a that is a useful tool uh, for the opposition to use in forcing the conversation about the government not being willing to tolerate any criticism of it and the government being elitist in its approach to how the convoy was handled and the government being, you know, far too heavy handed, right? And so the, it allows the opposition parties to make these sorts of arguments that are that in some of them actually are very much resonant with things that people already think about the liberals and so there's lots of opportunity i think there's also going to be a lot of pressure on jagmeet singh to define where he is exactly in this relationship with the liberals once parliament starts again good question a nice segue laurie thank you (laughs) Uh, because there's going to be an awful lot of pressure on jagmeet singh for a number of reasons this thing but also uh the manifesto essentially that he came up with last week about the the, the national dental program uh, it's not done by the end of the year uh you, you lose us that's all there is to it uh you got to figure that the other opposition parties are going to be really t- you know twisting the knots around jagmeet singh right now to say enough is enough if you had enough of this 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 forced marriage between the two parties and i would imagine he's uh, he's going to be feeling the heat oh yeah and i think you know he he's in a, in a tough spot which is why i was i was always kind of not sure what in the heck this deal gave them because if you want dental care and you want to deliver that for your constituents and you want to show that it was the NDP that really brought this idea to light why are you in this alliance this formal thing just hold the government to account you know get them to do it like use your parliamentary tools at your disposal I'm not sure this is any easier for them or gives them any kind of extra leverage because now you don't hear anything from Jigmeet Singh because he's like kind of screwed either way right like if he comes out and says oh my god the liberals are giving us terrible government people will say well why are you supporting them then and then, but if he, you know, if he doesn't criticize and he doesn't hold him to account, he looks like he's not having any kind of effect. He's not going to want to go to election in the fall. That's like, I mean, I don't know that the strategy that he's using right now is going to pay off. But, you know, if Polyev wins this thing, as it looks like he will, and Trudeau is looking not amazing in the polls and, you know, r- approval ratings for him are low, people's sense of where the, cover- the government, the country is going are not great right now. And so if Jagmeet Singh wants to hand over a government to Pierre Polyev, 
yeah, he'll call and he'll, he'll force an election in the fall. The conservatives would be fine with that, I think. But I think that's going to be really jamming Singh. So then it's going to be a question of the how do you posture? What does a win look like for the dental care? Are people going to be happy with the government sending you a check to cover your dental? Or does there have to, you know, he's saying there's got to be a full program. But what if they don't? Right. And does he really want to go to an election when he hasn't delivered de- dental? Like, I don't know. I think this is dangerous. This is dangerous politics. Well, especially if those are the priorities, and let's assume that they are, because he talked about those all through the campaign as well. Uh, He feels, I guess, that he has some leverage here with the prime minister to try to move this thing through. He's certainly not going to have any leverage with Pierre Polyev. Uh, I mean, anything anything he has going for him right now goes right out the window. In fact, the conservatives win the next election, even if it's a minority government. I don't think he's going to reach out to Jagmeet Singh for support on a whole lot of issues that Polyev wants to move forward on. Oh, heck no. And so then you raise a really interesting point, Bill. If if that all happened, if by some, you know, whenever the case will go to election eventually. So whenever it happens and Polyev comes back with a plurality of seats, but not a majority, what do they do? Right. Like does, you know, because the prime minister would still be prime minister the morning after election. What's Jagmeet Singh going to do? Is he going to say he's going to keep supporting Trudeau, even though Polyev has a plurality, but not enough to, to you know, like it's going to be really interesting to see how the rules and the con- the conventions of parliament are tested in the event that who who holds the confidence of the house isn't clear after the next election i only got a minute left but i got it very quickly ask you uh, about the center rights conservatives a little mm. meeting that they had over the weekend i know we're going to talk about it in further detail in the show uh but uh it the disenchantment with polyev here within the conservative party is palpable at this stage and i don't get the sense that these guys are going to rally under the big tent and say okay you know yeah it was acrimonious but he's the leader and let's rally behind him there's a lot of folks here that just are not going to be polyev followers yeah i mean i read the paul wells article on it it's a fantastic description and analysis of what happened and i think there's some heavy hitters in that room who are you know not doesn't necessarily make a difference in terms of the numbers that are going to deliver polyev a victory if that's what happens right like it's not like this is somehow a threat to him winning the thing but it is a lot of people a lot of smart people who have a lot of influence in the conservative movement a lot of media presence getting together and saying we have a different version of conservatism and as you say we're not necessarily going to follow this guy along and sometimes i think to myself like we talk about the merger of the progressive conservatives and the canadian alliance which then became the conservative party in 2004 but to the extent that this party really pulls away from that it almost looks in retrospect like this was a takeover of the progressive conservatives by the conservative movement as opposed to a merger of things because if the merger had worked then the progressive conservatives we're hearing from at this conference over the weekend would be able to find space to live and breathe in the conservative movement but we're not seeing that well exactly and that and that sentiment was there i mean david archer Mm -hmm. you you may recall was one of the disenchanted conservatives back in those days because he he said okay go ahead peter meet with this guy peter mckay meeting with stephen harper but don't whatever you do sign a deal well he did anyway so and, and there, so there were a lot of uh, ticked-off people at that time. Great story to follow. I, I, we look forward to the coverage on this in the coming days as uh, we get back to work up there. Thanks, as always, Laurie. Have a great week, and we'll talk again soon. You too, Bill. Take care. You betcha. Dr. Laurie Turnbull, Lord, uh, Director of uh, School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to focus on, on a meeting that took place last week. Uh, we all know about the conservative leadership race that's going on right now. Uh, and we know that uh, Pierre Polyev uh, remains the heavy favorite to be the next conservative leader of the party. He, but he trails 
Jean Charest and support among Canadians as a whole. Mia Rabson has some details on that. A new Leger poll conducted in collaboration with the Association for Canadian Studies suggests more than 4 in 10 Conservative voters believe Pierre Polyev would make the best party leader. His chief rival Jean Charest is backed by fewer than 1 in 5. But among all Canadians polled, Charest comes out ahead with 22% support compared with 16% for Polyev. Also, more than one in four Canadians told Leger a Polyev victory would make them less likely to vote Conservative, while one in five said that about Charest. Mia Rabson, The Canadian Press, Ottawa. Now, this is very relevant uh, because uh, of the meeting that took place uh, by a group of, uh, well, should we say moderate uh, Conservatives that are not enthralled with the idea of Pierre Polyev being the leader of their particular party. Uh, they called themselves the center-ice Conservatives. Now, how typically Canadian is that, right? Uh, and there's a great op-ed piece in the National Post about this. Uh, Polyev's spirit hung over center-ice conservatives like Banquo's ghost. Uh, the author of that is uh, Dr. Jack Mintz. Uh, dis- Jack, of course, is a distinguished fellow at the McDonald Laurier Institute and president and fellow of the School of Public Policy at the University of Calgary. And he joins us here on The Real Kelly Show to talk about that. And let's talk about this, uh, this new group, uh, if in fact uh, we can call them that. Uh, Jack, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you back in the program today. Oh, it's uh, my pleasure. Thanks. Let's, let's talk a little bit about what you observed with this. Uh, I'm looking at some of the names that were involved in this, uh, as you touched on here, of course. Uh, uh, Rick Peterson, who ran, of course, for the Conservatives at one time. Uh, Christy Clark, the former British Columbia Premier, is there. Are they disgruntled, or are they just uh, pining for the days of, of the Brian Mulroney, progressive conservative types? <laughs> well, uh, they might be. I'm not sure. Uh, but I would say that, uh, because a lot of them, by the way, were Chavez supporters, uh, however, uh, I do say I do think that they do have a let's say a legitimate concern that there's been a movement towards uh, more let's say more extreme policies, uh, uh, both on the left and the right. You know, they, uh, although I didn't talk about it much in my article, but certainly there was a lot of criticism of uh, the current uh, federal government uh, under the Liberals. A view that the liberals have gone uh, much more to the left than they used to be. I would I would agree with that because I do remember the liberals of the 1990s and they were they tended to be a very centrist party at that time. Uh, and so certainly we have seen this uh, movement toward you know to more to more I wouldn't call it necessarily extreme, but certainly uh, more to the right or more to the left uh, in politics uh, uh, that we haven't seen for uh, some time. Well, and, and I, I have the same observation, and, and I think there's just as many disgruntled liberals right now as there are disgruntled conservatives in situations like this. And, and Christy Clark, who addressed this conference, as you mentioned in the piece, Jack, I, I think touched on that. Uh, and, and I think the theme, although maybe not stated, but certainly implied here, is that Canadians, for the most part, feel pretty comfortable in the middle. I mean, middle right, middle left, but it's sort of in the middle. Uh, and I think a lot of people in this country right now are upset with the extremism of, of, of the way politics is starting to evolve now on both sides. Well, I think that's true. Although, you know, uh, you know, I, th- I do think, though, that there's uh, perhaps more common ground than one thinks. Uh, uh, even and as I remark in my article about uh, Pierre Polyev, who I know very well, as well as Jean Charest, by the way, um, you know, uh, Polyev has really emphasized very much uh, economic issues, uh, fiscal discipline, uh, and I think, you know, a lot of Canadians are, are in that camp. I mean, we, Canadians have tended in history to be uh, fairly fiscally conservative in, in their views, and they tend to be socially, uh, uh, let's say, more, uh, I, I don't like the word progressive necessarily because I don't know what that 
word means, but certainly they tend to be more uh, quite supportive of, uh, you know, of a strong social um, social safety net for for individuals and things like that. And and uh, when you look at uh, even Polyev's platform so far, a lot of it is on on things like freedom and uh, and and economic policy. And in fact, uh, a lot, quite a few of the um, the actual policies that he's espoused so far would probably be appealing to the center just as much as uh, those on, on the right, uh, where he takes a very strong stance, of course, is on issues like freedom, uh, which I think has a certain appeal for for certain uh, for certain people. And then, of course, what we also have is this identity politics. And I think one of the really interesting uh, comments came uh, when a question uh, of the former uh, BC Premier, Christy Clark, was asked uh, whether she... Uh, whether she was, uh, you know, what did you know? Uh, what did she think about you know politics and uh, you know and, and you know and how it goes uh, how it goes proceeds right now? And she she talked about how the parties uh, you know slice and dice Canadians. Uh, you know, in fact, they try to win an elect, uh, a seat. You know, by it's not a matter of winning the, uh, a particular constituency, but winning some part of a, cons- uh, of a, a political constituency. And of course, we're seeing uh, even in the last election, the government can get minority, get a minority uh, simply by with 33% of the vote. Uh, and so, and we haven't really had strong majorities since the days of Mulroney, actually. And so, uh, I do think that there is uh, maybe a feeling amongst among Canadians that there is a real, real need to start thinking about, uh, you know, speaking to Canada as a whole as opposed to just speaking to some parts of Canada. And, and I think your point's well taken about about the fiscal aspect of this. And I think that's, again, where Canadians feel comfortable. Uh, the disenchanted liberals I've talked to, and there's been a few of them over the last couple of years especially, uh, pine for the days of Paul Martin and John Manley. And, and, and as you say, that, that strong fiscal policy there, with the social safety net, of course, uh, but but they were known for their 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 approach for that and 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 for and getting the job done properly and as you say there was very little difference there uh, when it came to fiscal responsibility so so why why the is it distrust Jack or, or just plain don't like Pierre Paulia because a lot of people just within that party are not crazy about this guy as the leader well I think <laughs> we'll see what the party vote is going to be I would say the party is very supportive of him. I, I think part of it, you know, we also have to remember uh, new leaders aren't very well known until a campaign actually takes place. And so we will have to see uh, down the road uh, whether Polio will have, uh, you know, appeal to a broader part of the population. Uh, and, and I think what's going to be important is he can't let uh, the liberals or other people try to define him. He has to define himself. And, I, and we'll, we'll see how that evolves over time. You know, I do remember the days in the mid-90s when... Uh, you know, when Mike Harris uh, was poo-pooed, you know, in terms of his common sense revolution, you know, that he was going to cut taxes and cut spending and balance the budget at the same time. And he really did go after welfare reform at, at that point. Um, and a lot of people uh, reacted quite negatively to him in the, in, publicly. But in the end, he won two majorities. And I think that's because a lot of people wanted to see change at that time. So, so we'll have to see how these things evolve over time. And 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 what kind of leadership Pierre Polyev actually demonstrates that he can, uh, particularly if he can pull the party together, which I think uh, will be critical for the Conservatives if they want to win an election. So, it, and again, the fiscal stuff is one thing, and and you're right. I mean, there's a lot of similarities between what he's talking about and and what got us in in the, the, the I think the favorable financial position we were in in, in past generations. 
so is it the social issues that, that some people have concerns about? His 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 uh, playing was well, one individual told me playing footsie with the the, the protesters in Ottawa back in February. Uh, you know the uh, the idea about cryptocurrency and and you know going after the the governor of the Bank of Canada, things like that. That in in many people's minds uh, smacks of radicalism. Well, actually, I, I find I find that kind of amusing that somehow we can't we can't say that a, a governor can't uh, the Bank of Canada can't be fired by his board because because of uh, making mistakes. <laughs> but we'll leave that one aside. Um, I, I do I do say that uh, I do think though that um, uh, so far the, the cryptocurrency thing uh, I'm not sure whether that's right left or radical maybe. Uh, maybe a concern over uh, maybe some judgment, which I think is more important. With respect to the uh, the, the convoy, I, you know, I think where Polyev has really stood very strongly goes back to his point about freedom. You know, that he he was he's supportive. He was supportive of vaccines. He never disagreed with that, but he he did he disagreed with the mandates. Again, this goes back to uh, how one defines himself, him or herself, in, in politics. And uh, there'll be other issues that are going to come up between now and whenever the election takes place. And uh, again, we'll have to see how he beha behaves. One thing, uh, knowing Pierre Polyev, he is definitely not a social conservative. Uh, you know, he he is not going to be raising issues like abortion and, and things like that. And I think one of the things Center Ice Conservative Group, when they were talking last week, and I think is very important, as they said, you know, uh, we should be really focusing on the big issues and and, and not get tied up with issues that are uh, less important, really, to uh, to Canada. In other words, let's talk about taxes. Let's talk about, uh, you know, uh, how we're going to get more growth, how we're going to get more investment. Uh, things that I think uh, a lot of Canadians are concerned about uh, in terms of how we're doing as a country. And I think people are getting concerned about uh, unity within the country. And I think this goes back to the slice and dice policies of governments that it's actually creating disunity amongst the regions in Canada. So I think, I think we really, uh, we really do need to think about uh, the big policies and, and, and how to address them. I think that's going to be something that's going to be important, I think, for uh, not just uh, Polya, but for, uh, but for others as well. Hey, and we'd be naive to suggest that uh, you know that any political party is going to be one happy family. There's always going to be some dissension, always going to be some disagreement. We get that, uh, but is is what we saw last week, Jack, a, a one off, or is there is there a movement there that uh, that could be grown? Uh, and, and not just with Christy Clark and, and some of the others there, but are, are there that many people that are disenchanted with what's going on in the political scene on both sides of the spectrum right now that they would gravitate to something like this? I, I'm not sure, to be honest. Uh, uh, I'm not sure whether the center is going to, you know, be able to articulate a position that could attract a large number of people without looking at as a mushy middle. And, and I think that's going to be the, the real challenge for something like that. In fact, the Canadian Ice Conservatives are thinking of changing their name to the Canadian, uh, to, um, sorry, the Center Ice Conservatives changing their name to the Center Ice um, uh, Canadians. And, and and that's because they are getting people from the Liberal uh, Party that would like to see more middle middle type policies uh, as well, and certainly they may try to promote that, which I think would be a positive uh, thing to do in Canadian politics for someone to to promote the centre and not you know and not argue that the centre is weak and you know we have to go to the more uh, more to uh, extremes as opposed to uh, looking at the centre. Uh, and so if they 
provide that kind of uh, service to the Canadian public, I think that could be quite positive. But I don't know if they're going to be a political movement down the road per se. In other words, turn themselves into a centrist party that uh, might be able to win elections. It may just end up uh, being another party that just doesn't succeed. And of course, we've seen in the United States is uh, a clear uh, movement to both the left and right in, uh, amongst the Democrats and the Republicans. And, uh, and the middle really is, is having trouble uh, uh, being able to operate uh, with a uh, large following. Even though lots of people say well, they, want, they like the center, it doesn't happen. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's interesting. I mean, historically, we've seen this happen with splinter parties. Well, Preston Manning, of course, with the Reform Party back in, in uh, that day, and, of course, well, and more recently, I guess, Maxine Bernier. But those were people that were uh, feeling that the party was too much of a centrist party and wanted to, to move a little more uh, to, to what they called true conservatism. It's interesting to see now that uh, there seems to be this disenchanted middle group right now that are saying, hey, what about us? But if they were going to succeed, and, and, and I know they mentioned all through the, their meeting that, no, we're not really a party. We're not. That's not our intention here. But do they need a hero? Do they need a standard bearer to say, rally around me, I'm the guy like like Bernier did with the People's Party? Yeah, I think they're going to uh, need to do that for uh, for sure. If they really wanted to uh, develop into a party, they're going to need to have someone that's going to be very attractive uh, and, and speak, uh, you know, being able to speak to Canadians and and, and try to persuade them why, why a party like this is important. I mean, Bernier has not had that much success. And in fact, no. Probably one of the things that's going to happen is Polio will pull a lot of that uh, people's party support uh, back into the conservatives. Uh, in fact, when I looked at the last election, you know, just two thirds of that people's um, party, if they had voted conservative, you, you would have had a much different result. There would have been quite a few seats mm -hmm. that were very marginal, uh, like 100,000 point, uh, point votes difference. Uh, they, they would have turned into uh, conservative wins. Uh, in, across Canada, especially in Ontario, Quebec, interestingly. So, uh, so I think uh, I think that will be you know I think that will be one of the things that's going to happen uh, to to Bernie. But he never really took off as a uh, you know as a serious contender. Exactly, uh, Jack. We're just about out of time. Uh, thanks as always for this. I'll direct our listeners. It's in the National Post webpage, by the way. Uh, Polly of spirit hung over center rights conservatives like Banquo's ghost. I love the Shakespearean analogy, by the way. Uh, always appreciate that. Uh, stay well, and uh, hopefully we'll talk again soon. Appreciate this today, Jack. Okay, thank you. Take care. Dr. Jack Mintz uh, from the University of Calgary. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Watching the uh, political shows on Sunday morning on all the American networks, and uh, it's interesting to see the reaction uh, and the strategy that's being developed now by uh, by Trump supporters in light of the uh, the raid that took place, of course, at Mar-a-Lago and, and the FBI seizing uh, a number of boxes of material that they said the, the ex-president never should have had. Uh, join us to talk about that and, and lots more going on in U.S. politics. Uh, it, great to have Reggie Cicchini back in the program. Reggie, of course, is the Washington correspondent uh, for Global News in Washington. Uh, Reggie, uh, they, they seem to have settled on their talking points down there right now. Uh, basically, the, the, the variations of the theme are show us the warrant and, uh, hey, Obama did this too, so what's the big deal? I mean, look, Bill, we've been here before. Uh, we've done this uh, with a president where he gets caught doing something and uh, it becomes a matter of which excuse is going to last the longest. 
Um, and sure, you have Republicans that are saying, show us the warrant. You have some Democrats saying we need to see the warrant so that we can find out what kind of do uh, trouble Donald Trump is in. And all the while, you have the former president making claims uh, to try and change the narrative, to try and kind of gin up the base and rile up that base by either saying that it was planted evidence or it was declassified evidence or it was a, a problem with packing the boxes or that I was allowed to take it anyways because I was the president. All of this is firing up his base. It's making Republicans question more why this raid took place. And it's leaving Democrats to say, this is the problem with the former president. Well, and, and I guess one of the concerns a lot of us have right now is uh, maybe the obvious question here, Reggie, how serious are these offenses? Is, is this simply a matter of, hey, uh, Trump, you should never have taken those things out of the, those, out of the White House, send them back. Or is this, as some people are characterizing this, a national security measure where there's things in that in those boxes, not that he just didn't have, but he could have possibly shared with other people. I mean, how serious and how worried are they about, first of all, what he has and what he might have done or what he might have been planning to do with it? Well, I think if we look at the search warrant that was released um, last week after both he and his legal team opted to not stand in the way of the Department of Justice unsealing it and making it public, there are a number of items in that list that are listed as top secret and then SCI, which means that those contents need to remain in a secured government facility or like a, a skiff room. Uh, and and Mar-a-Lago is not that. There are It is an open club with paying members of the public uh, who can who can access this information. Uh, and that is where Democrats uh, and really the Department of Justice has stepped in to say there is a real problem here that some of the information could have been so sensitive that national security was of um, utmost concern here, especially if we go back to the post, uh, the reporting from the Washington Post last week uh, that said that some of the information could be linked to nuclear weapons. And we don't know what that information was. We never got a clarification because we didn't see the affidavit. But the Department of Justice to go into a former president's house and use a code uh, that has to do with a potential violation of the Espionage Act really does raise the level of concern here to extreme, at least in the eyes of the Justice Department and Democrats, that the former president was potentially harboring documents for unknown reasons, either nefarious or for, you know, simple pleasure of knowing that he had those documents. And that's what the concern is. How extensive is this uh, investigation going to be? I mean, they've got the FBI now has in their possession a number of things that they, they took out of Mar-a-Lago. Uh, but I got to assume, Reggie, the, Donald Trump didn't do this on his own. Uh, he didn't know where to go to get the stuff. He wouldn't know what to look for, et cetera. I mean, I know there was one story that said, no, he, he used to take this home at night so he could prepare. Well, we know he never read documents. So that that's, gets tossed out the window. But there had to be other people within the, the Trump orbit that were complicit in this. Absolutely. Uh, and, and I think that that may come out with uh, with whatever the Justice Department investigates. But we also heard late last week, Bill, uh, that Adam Schiff, one of the leading uh, House uh, Democrats, uh, intends to potentially open up an investigation here. And, you know, this is obviously timely because Democrats risk losing power uh, in the next couple of months after the midterms. You know, if, if that happens, that could get in the way of any investigation. So it would need to be quick. But to find out who may have been assisting Donald Trump, was it somebody higher up in the administration? Was it his chief of staff, Mark Meadows? Was it somebody within Trump's own family 
who worked in the administration. These are questions that remain unanswered. And I think where we're very quickly finding the Department of Justice now is caught in the middle of a potential criminal investigation being meshed with um, what is very quickly being thrown into the center of a political firestorm here. And this is something obviously that that the attorney general likes to keep himself out of, especially so close to an election. But it is growing more and more difficult for DOJ to find itself not politically linked to this, despite the fact that there may have been no political basis to this in the first place. And I think that is ultimately where any information is going to come out of, but it's also where the most damage uh, could be done, whether it's to the Department of Justice, whether it is to the Attorney General, or whether it's to Republicans and Donald Trump. Reggie, this, we were told, is separate and apart from the January 6th investigation that's going on. It, they, that's that's one of the things that we heard anyway. And again, it's hard, you know, there's so many different sources and so many different pieces of information. Uh, how did they decide or how did they know to go and look for these things? I mean, you know, did, did they get tipped off that these things were in Mar-a-Lago? I mean, if it is separate and apart from the January 6th, which is a congressional hearing anyway, uh, uh, not an FBI investigation, Somebody had to have said, hey, by the way, you, you know, go look in the basement down there, that sort of thing. I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to be flippant about this, but but they, they had to be directed. Is, is there a, an insider within the Trump orbit here who's who's working on behalf of the FBI? That's a very real possibility, because, again, the unprecedented nature of this, of a attorney general signing off on the uh, entry of a former president's house uh, is not something that is done uh, you know, just kind of uh, in, in, a, in a whim. He's not just signing off on this to say, sure, let's just go on a fishing expedition. Uh, there was a real concern here, which is how a federal judge signed off on probable cause. How did that probable cause come about? There are reports that a potential member of the Secret Service could have blown the lid on this. Uh, and, you know, there's been some pushback saying Secret Service is supposed to be there to be able to protect the president. Well, yes, but at the end of the day, they are also a level of law enforcement that have a duty to uphold the law. But I think you know, looking at this more broadly, Bill, uh, this was potentially inevitable because this is not something that just happened, you know, over the last week where DOJ signed off on this and they went into Mar-a-Lago. This has been going on between Donald Trump's lawyers and National Archives for more than a year to get this information back. And uh, from reporting that came out over the weekend, Donald Trump's lawyers sent uh, the archivist and DOJ and National Archives uh, a letter saying all of the information had been handed back. And then over the course of what you know appears to be an audit of of, uh, of documents, that's how they found out even more documents were still remaining at Mar-a-Lago. So this 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 was a kind of culmination of Donald Trump's own um, you know behavior uh, and and the way that his lawyers were responding. And you know here we are now with you know a, a, a political disaster or a political nightmare kind of lining up right behind Donald Trump. Uh, and he is now in forward motion to try and either deflect it to be somebody else's problems or throw so much at the wall that it becomes difficult to decipher what's true and what's not. I guess one of the more troubling uh, offshoots of this thing that we've seen over the last couple of days, and again, not something new, I guess, it's all part of the Trump strategy and has been uh, for quite some time, uh, is the art of deflection. Uh, and and the, the vitriol and the hatred uh, that we're seeing, not just on social media, but even from, from House Republicans, uh, Reggie, uh, toward the FBI, the, the people that carried out the, uh, as we know, one one Fox News uh, host, I guess, who used to work for Trump, actually outed the agents and and the judge, and and there's there's death threats. There's a lot going on there right now. This is the this is the the party that's supposed to be the law and order party in this country, yet yet they're basically putting the FBI right in the in the crosshairs. 
Well, and it's also this is the same party that is uh, complaining about a politicization of FBI and of Department of Justice at the hands of both Democrats and the former president trying to say that they are using uh, these these departments to go after a political um, you know, a perceived political enemy if Donald Trump decides to, to run again. Uh, and at the same time, you have Republicans uh, and the former president and members of, Repu- of right-wing media uh, politicizing FBI and DOJ uh, officials for their own purposes to, again, make Donald Trump look better. And you're right, this is supposed to be the party who is, uh, who is be- behind and backing law enforcement. And this was the party that was incredibly critical of Democrats and those who were out protesting uh, in the summer of 2020 uh, as being anti-law enforcement. But you had Representative Paul Gosar uh, last week, uh, a controversial member of the House, a-, a staunch Trump supporter, talking about getting rid of uh, the FBI uh, in a in a much more kind of, uh, you know, violent or forceful way. And you have other members like Marjorie Taylor Greene latching on to a Democratic slogan of defund the FBI. All of a sudden now these agents who are doing something that was being carried out in a matter of law enforcement, Republicans are politicizing this. That is putting members of the FBI at risk. That is, you know, we saw in Cincinnati last week with a, with a potential attack take place at an FBI office in Ohio. Uh, we have seen the online threats towards FBI agents. As you mentioned, we've seen the, uh, the doxing and the outing of information uh, of FBI uh, agents. This is now becoming problematic in politics around Donald Trump and for the people who are tasked with upholding the law. And this is setting a dangerous precedent going forward. Reggie, we don't know where this is going to go vis-a-vis charges against uh, whom uh, what, uh, Trump could be anybody else. We don't know. Uh, the, as you've mentioned, and as you've been reporting, of course, over the last couple of days, the, the, this is an ongoing investigation. Is there a concern, though, uh, as, as with the folks you've been talking to in the nation's capital right now in Washington, uh, that if there is an arrest made, uh, if there are charges laid more specifically, uh, that there could be pushback. I mean, we've heard anywhere from armed insurrection to civil war if that should happen. I, I, I don't know if there's any any merit to to those uh, concerns at this stage right now. But there 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 does seem to be a consensus that there would be some sort of a pushback if the DOG takes this to the DOJ rather takes it to the next level. I think it's a, it's it's a combination uh, from the people I've talked to at least that it is not only competing but it is also dueling concerns uh, over what happens if Donald Trump is charged. This is going to you know delight the Democrats, delight people who may be uh, you know anti Donald Trump, but it is going to enrage uh, the supporters of Donald Trump and it is going to enrage Republicans who will use this and say that this is a political hit on uh, Donald Trump. The, the, the secondary concern here is, Bill, if charges aren't laid, if Department of Justice says, look, we were simply trying to get documents back and we had to use extreme measures to try and get this, uh, you know, information that 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 throws national security at risk and charges aren't going to be laid. Republicans in Donald Trump's base are going to be even more enraged because they are going to see this as a violation. And then we risk seeing even more pushback. So at this point, Department of Justice really finds itself in a damned if it does, damned if it doesn't moment by not laying charges or laying charges. There's a real risk here that there could be some kind of uprising from within the deep and dark parts of the Republican base based on what the Department of Justice decides that it's going to do. Remember, this is not going to be a quick decision. DOJ has a lot of, of materials to try and go through. But whatever the outcome is, Republicans aren't going to be happy either way. 
and, and add to that, I guess, as, as you've been saying in, in reporting, I mean, Merrick Garland has a reputation of being slow and methodical. Uh, I mean, let's face it, 10 days ago, he was being criticized for not doing anything about any of this stuff. And now all of a sudden, he's, he's you know, the focus of everybody's attention for the, I guess, from the re Republican standpoint, for all the wrong reasons. But, uh, and I understand that you, you they want to be thorough and they want to make sure that they've got something here before they, they take that next step. But is there a, a, a concern here about timing? As you mentioned, the midterms are coming up, and the longer this thing hangs out there, uh, the more speculation is going to be, and the more angry people on both sides are going to get. Yeah, and look, Democrats are going to run out of time. Now, there, there is a chance that Democrats could potentially um, you know, use this to their advantage uh, and, and you know, lock this into the, the, the battle over abortion rights and the battle over what they see as, you know, a Republican threat and try to potentially stave off any kind of uprising by Republicans uh, in the midterms. If they don't do that, time is not on their side. And if they do want to do some kind of oversight investigation, which I will say, there are some Republicans who are interested in carrying out oversight as well, because they want to find out exactly what Department of Justice was aiming for here and what their eventual goal was. So there could be some kind of bipartisanship here on getting an investigation going, just kind of moving in two different directions. Democrats are up against the clock. They know it. DOJ knows it. Donald Trump knows that. And so do Republicans. So they're going to do what they can. But at the end of the day, we always just have to remember for an attorney general who was forced into this position because of Republican pressure, who likes to keep himself out of the political circle to come out and talk and say what he did. He didn't just do this for the fun of it. This is a man who takes the job seriously and is very methodical. And there, there are very likely reasons for why DOJ went in this direction. I, I got a minute left, but I got to get your comment on one other thing, too. This was a big week in Washington, supposed to be, because finally uh, the Biden bill, the Build Back Better bill, well, the revised bill, the watered down version, some would suggest, finally got passed. Uh, and and I, I know that, I'm, I'm guessing, Reggie, that the, the Biden administration wanted to make a big deal. They're trying to get some positive vibes going in the country right now. Uh, but the, the Trump raid uh, just sucked all the air out of the room, didn't it? Sure, it did. Uh, and, and I think that it's taking a focus away from what is ultimately a massive victory for the Biden administration, which is one of several that have been piling up. It's historic. There are hundreds of billions of dollars that this administration is going to thrust into uh, climate change as well as uh, prescription drug care in this country, which is a fight that's been going on for years, if not decades. Uh, and, you know, the fact that victory laps were being run prematurely was a big move for Democrats. But now that they have this, they're able to get this to the president's desk and have it signed before midterm elections are going to take place. This is now another opportunity to gather in and bring in uh, Democrats who may have been waffling on whether or not, you know, they see this president as someone who's able to get the job done. Now that they have wins, uh, when it comes to healthcare, when it comes to uh, uh, bringing down inflation, or when it comes to uh, uh, climate fight, uh, this is a big deal. Democrats are going to run with it. And from the, the early polling that's out there, of course, it's not rock solid right now. This red wave that could have been expected later this year, if it is a red wave, may not be as big as one first thought. And Democrats potentially do stand a real shot here of maintaining the Senate and possibly, possibly maintaining the House. A very fluid situation. We'll be watching for your reporting, as always, of course, on Global National on this. Uh, Reggie, as always, thanks for this. Appreciate the time today. Thanks, Bill. Take care. Reggie Giacchini, of course, Global's guy in Washington, uh, keeping an eye on what's going on with the Trump thing. And, of course, yeah, they're still trying to govern down there, too. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. 
I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.